You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to Facing Evil, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the show and do not represent those of iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV. This podcast contains subject matter which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Facing Evil from Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio. We are your hosts. I'm Rasha Pecorero. And I am Yvette Gentile. And always with our Texan producer, Trevor Young. Howdy. Howdy, howdy. Howdy, howdy. Howdy, howdy, y'all. Oh, my God. This is going to be such a special episode because as we speak, we are at Podcast Movement in Dallas, Texas, y'all. Welcome to Texas. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you, Trevor. This is our very first time at Podcast Movement, and we are so excited and honored to be here. And we're actually going to be speaking on a panel about facing evil, and we're going to be interviewing a few big names in the podcast community. All of that, of course, will be published right here on the Facing Evil feed. So look out for that in the coming weeks. That's right. And we wanted to do something special this week while we're in Dallas. So as it happens, there is one case we've been talking about for a very long time, a case that takes place right here in Dallas. It's a very important one. So Trevor, I would be honored if you'd get us started. What's the problem, sir? Um, my girlfriend called me, said there was a man in her apartment using the bathroom and the phone, and now I cannot get her to answer the phone. Our car is here, and she can't, won't answer the door, can't answer the door. I mean, this man stabbed her 18 times, broke bones, everything. When they went in and found Angie, there was so much blood, it looked like her heart had been cut out. Angela Samoda was a 20-year-old woman from Dallas, Texas. On the evening of October 12th, 1984, Angela went out with some college friends. Late that night, after she returned home, Angela found a man in her apartment. Distressed, she called her boyfriend Ben, but then abruptly hung up. Around 2 a.m., police arrived on the scene and discovered Angela's body. She had been sexually assaulted and stabbed to death. Police looked at multiple suspects, including her boyfriend, an ex-boyfriend, and one of the men she went out with that night. But police weren't able to convict anyone in Angela's murder. They said they lacked sufficient evidence. And so, Angela's case went cold. 
and it remained cold for years. But one of Angela's friends, Sheila Waisaki, was determined to find the killer, and she did her own investigation and presented her findings to the Dallas police. And as a result, police eventually reopened the case and arrested the culprit in 2008. And so, what happened to Angela Samoda? Why weren't the police initially able to solve the murder? And what does this tell us about how law enforcement investigates rape cases? It's, to me, it's such a horrific crime. I mean, of course, every crime that we talk about here on Facing Evil is a horrific crime. But she was brutally murdered and it became a cold case. But the light and the darkness for me, of course, is Angela's, you know, friend, Sheila, and how she did not give up. And so many of these cases, like back then, right, they didn't have cold case squads that could, you know, like go after all of these rapists. So all of these cases, right, just sat. I mean, this is just so horrible. And what really gets to me about this case that Angela, I mean, she was attacked in her own home in a place where like after you've partied all night and had a good time, you want to go home and just enjoy, you know, your space. And feel safe. Right. Especially when you're tired. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, like this is just so horrifying that this happened in her home. Yeah. Yeah. I think home invasion stories are always particularly unsettling. Um, I think there's a reason why we have so many horror movies, you know, that have a whole genre around home invasion. It's just like one of the worst things you can experience. All of that is absolutely true. But this case should have been investigated so much better. I mean, I feel like this is a recurring thing that keeps happening in all the cases that we're talking about. You know, like something should have been done from the beginning. This should not have become a cold case. It was almost as if the police just gave up. Yeah, I think it was really sad how this case just sat alone for 20 years with no one touching it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the way that the evidence was just kind of stored and, and never really looked into. Um, and I think the really kind of even more sad thing is that this sort of thing is really common. This happens all the time. I know. I mean, exactly. If we think about the Black Dahlia case, right, Elizabeth Short, like that was 75 years ago. And it's still, still to this day, technically unsolved. Yep, it's true. And this sort of thing hasn't really gotten any better since the Black Dahlia case, which was back in the 40s. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, Here's just a little bit of statistics you can look at. So just looking at general homicide cases, between 1980 and 2019, there were nearly 185,000 homicide and non-negligent manslaughter cases that went unsolved. And and then in cases of rape specifically, the solve rate is even lower. It's even worse. So for every 100 cases of rape, only 12 of them lead to an arrest, only nine on average are prosecuted, and then only five of them actually lead to any sort of felony conviction. So that's super abysmal. Abysmal, yes. Yeah. Abysmal and not okay in any way, shape, or form. Um, that's injustice. And that's exactly why... We wanted to talk about this case. And I mean, I can only speak for myself, right? But I, I think being a woman, a cisgendered woman at that, like I think that's one of your biggest fears, right? Is 
being raped or feeling vulnerable. Right. And, you know, I don't believe in hope being lost, but when Angela's murder went unsolved for so many years after being raped and brutally stabbed to death, like all it took was that one person who believed in finding her killer. And that to me is hope. There's hope in every single case. So like when anyone ever says, oh, no, you can't solve it. It can't be done. I don't believe that. Right. And I don't believe that because of the Sheila's of the world. (laughs) Right. I mean, and if anything, like what you just said, I mean, that's the light in this story. Mm -hmm. It's certainly the kind of thing that police should be doing this. Like not ordinary citizens or friends of the family should be doing this. But if you have a calling to do it and you feel that passionate about it. Do it. That's how change happens. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness we have motivated people because typically the people whose job it is like just they're not as motivated. They don't have the personal connection to it the way somebody like Sheila does. Right. And like maybe they become too desensitized to it, like you said, Trevor, because they don't have a connection like to the victim. But whew. Yeah, I could not be a police officer because I'm way too empathetic. (laughs) I put myself in every victim's shoes. And I think that's why, you know, my stomach's always in knots. (laughs) But I have to find that light in the darkness. So, all right, Trevor, let's get into it. Can you tell us more about Angela Samota? So Angela Samota was born on October 13th in 1964. She moved to Dallas at age 18 to enroll at Southern Methodist University, SMU, where she studied electrical engineering. She was also a member of the Zeta Tau Alpha sorority. I hope I'm saying that right. (laughs) I'm sure they'll correct you if you're not. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. So I remember this in 1984, like there was not a ton of women doing what Angela was doing. Yeah. I mean, she was clearly very bold, very smart, and very, very independent. Yes, especially in 1984. And and according to one friend, Angela was, quote unquote, a triple threat, which I like to think I am sometimes. <laughs> I think we all would love to be triple threats. Oh, yeah. And she was absolutely beautiful. She was gorgeous. And she had this thousand watt smile. You know, if you look her up, you can see how beautiful she was and her smile could light up a room. She was also incredibly vivacious, her friends would say, and of course, incredibly intelligent. There's actually a photo, you know, from that time of Angela that I've seen online. And I think it's like a yearbook photo or something, but it's Angela like sitting in a classroom full of men and they are just, you know, looking at her and she's just the badass that she was. She was just sitting there looking super cool and confident. Have you guys seen that picture? Because Mm -hmm. I have. And she is just like, she is right in her element. She's just calm. And you can tell that she is in control, you know, of the whole situation. Unbothered by the male gaze. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I really think that that is an important backdrop for what happens the night of October 12th. So Trevor, can you tell us what happened? Right. So October 12th, she invites her neighbor and a friend to join her at the State Fair of Texas. And the neighbor is a very shy older man named Russell Buchanan. So that night, Angela, Russell Buchanan, and her friend, Anita Collada, go to the fair. And the fair that night coincided with the annual football game between UT, University of Texas, and uh, OU, which is University of Oklahoma. And that's a a huge rivalry for anybody who doesn't know. 
This means that there were up to 75,000 people or so roaming the streets of Dallas that evening near the state fair. Um, so after the fair, Angela and her two friends ended up at a club in Dallas called the Rio Room, uh, where Angela was supposedly just, you know, she owned the room. She was like the most popular person there. <laughs> it was her place. Yeah. And I think I, I've heard that, you know, her her friends have been quoted as saying that she was always the person like bouncing from table to table. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, one of the friends said that she knew everyone. And so around 1 a.m. that night, you know, they end up leaving. And she dropped her two friends off at their places. And then she actually stopped by her boyfriend's place. And her boyfriend was named Ben McCall. And she just dropped by to say goodnight. Because remember, you know, Ben didn't go with them that night. Do we know why he didn't go to the fair? He said he didn't go to the fair because he had to get up early. And from what I understand, he worked in construction. So, you know, normally they're up at the, the crack of dawn. So. Right. But what we do know is that she did see him that night. She goes to visit him. And then that's when she goes back to her place. Right. So then at about 1.45 a.m. in the morning, uh, Ben, her boyfriend, gets a phone call. And it's Angela back at home telling him that there is a man in her condo. He was apparently asking to use the phone and bathroom, and she let him in. Uh, and then there's this very chilling detail she says to him on the phone, quote, talk to me. But then the line goes dead. That's just, that's so frightening. Talk to me. And those are the last words that anyone who loved or cared for Angela Samota would ever hear her speak. Right. Um, we do need to take a quick break, though. So we'll pick it right up after we get back. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. So after Ben gets that incredibly uh, disturbing phone call from Angela, he calls the police, as absolutely he should. So at roughly 2.17 a.m., the police show up and find the door locked. So they actually have to end up breaking the door down in order to get inside. And inside, they find Angela's body. Yeah, and just a disclaimer, it does get a little grisly here, as some of these cases do. But they find her on her bed, completely naked, but she was also covered in blood. Uh, she had been brutally stabbed to death in the chest area up to 18 times. Uh, one of the investigators said it looked like she had had her heart cut out uh, and she had also been sexually assaulted. So immediately, the police identify three suspects. Uh, they look at her boyfriend, Ben McCall. 
Um, there's an unnamed ex-boyfriend that they also suspect. And then Russell Buchanan, the neighbor who had gone out with Angela that night, along with her friend. And the only really strong evidence police could find at this crime scene were secretions from the killer. Secretions being semen or saliva. Mm. So soon thereafter, antigen testing ruled out both Ben, the boyfriend, and the unnamed ex. That just left Russell Buchanan, the shy neighbor that Angela had invited to join her at the state fair. And so that's really the kind of prime suspect at this point. That's who they're really looking at. Right. I mean, he wasn't ruled out from the testing, and he lived within walking distance of Angela's apartment. Yeah, he was a neighbor, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was very close neighbor. And he was with her that night. So he seems to be the most likely suspect at this point. But he does have an alibi. Yes. And this is where I think we should bring up a very important character in this story. And that's Angela's friend, Sheila Gibbons, who is actually now known as Sheila Waisaki. So Sheila was a fellow SMU student and Angela's roommate at one point. So she ended up finding out about Angela on the morning of October 13th and understandably was completely devastated. Right. I mean, this just tore Sheila's world apart. She even said it destroyed her innocence. And she ended up dropping out of SMU because she said she just couldn't function. She couldn't deal with it. Like her whole worldview was just shattered. And around this time, she even said, quote, I just kept thinking these things just don't happen. They didn't happen in my world. End quote. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine, you know, what she was feeling at that time. I mean, losing her friend in such a brutal way, like right when you're in the prime of your lives mm -hmm. and then something so horrific, it, it literally changes the course of your life. And that's what happened to Sheila. Yeah, I think that loss of innocence bit is, um, you know, the most telling. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think she probably had a worldview that was very much about school, about hope, about, you know, growing up, about careers and success. And then all of a sudden, all of that was just taken away. It was no longer about progress or, or living your life in a fruitful way, but the harsh reality that life is dangerous, you know, the second you walk out onto the street, like nothing is certain. Or you're in your own home, like Angela was. Right. You're in your own, the fear, you know, the fear of that. Yeah, I, I can only imagine, you know, I mean, yes, we're sitting here talking about, you know, horrific crimes that happen every week, but you don't think about it happening to you or to someone you love. And that can definitely change the course of your life, like Yvette said. Getting back to the suspects, right? So after Russell Buchanan gave his alibi, police actually went to Sheila for help. So this was very interesting to me. So the police asked Sheila to actually have dinner with Russell Buchanan just to see if his alibi and his story matched up with what he'd told the police. Can you even imagine that? Like, mm -mm. I mean, going to have dinner with the potential killer of your friend. Like, first of all, she's a badass for yes. doing this. <laughs> yes. But at the same time, can you imagine being her mother? Like, I mean, her family doesn't want her to go. Like, mm -mm. there's no way. But she she did it. I'm surprised the police even asked her to do it, to be honest. Yeah, I know. I, I think about that, too. You know, again, we're talking about, like, 
you know, sending a like civilian in to go and sit with a potential killer. Like, wouldn't it be an undercover cop or someone? Right. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, she ends up going. You know, I, I'm sure she wanted answers and she wanted justice for Angela. And, you know, I think it was incredibly brave of her to do that despite her grief and despite all the emotions that we've talked about, about what she might have been thinking and feeling at that time. There's several interviews out there with her, and she was quoted as saying, I'm sitting here having dinner with a murderer, Angie's murderer, end quote. Uh, That said, she also said that uh, Buchanan's story seemed pretty solid. He said he had traveled to Houston that same weekend that uh, Angela was killed to visit his parents and had not actually heard about the murder until days later when he returned to Dallas. And that apparently lined up with what the police had. He also goes on to pass a lie detector test. And therefore, the police really have nothing on him. And he is officially ruled out. And thus, the case of Angela Samoda does indeed go cold. And that could have been the end of the story, right? But mm-hmm. no. <laughs> <Nope>. But no. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Sheila could not let it go. And she didn't give up. I mean, in the following months, she kept meeting with the investigator who was working on the case. But, you know, there was still no movement on this case, which had to have been so frustrating for her. Yeah. But again, she stayed going. She kept going. (laughs) Yeah. And then, you know, fast forward 20 years, Sheila's married, has two kids and has moved to Tennessee. But in the back of her mind, her friend's murder is always there and it still haunts her. I mean, how how could it not, right? Yeah. So that's when the next wild thing happened. In 2004, she said that while she was sitting at home, she looked over and saw her friend. She said she saw a vision of Angela Samota. Like a ghost vision? Like she appeared to her, you mm. know, and... I don't know if you guys have ever witnessed anything like that. I have never firsthand had it happen to me, but I have been in the presence. I have a really good friend, and I was sitting with her one day at brunch, and she said, your grandmother, Jimmy Lee, is here. And for those who don't know, Jimmy Lee was my mother's adopted Black mother, who she was raised by in Reno, Nevada. And she said to me, your grandmother's here. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she said, she just wants to apologize to you. And I knew instantly what she meant because when I was five years old, my grandmother had thrown me out of the house on a snowy day because I was whining and wanted to go play with my friends. And she was like, well, and she was go. drunk and she was drunk. Yes. And she was drunk. And I was in my little red coat and my friend Shayla like described what I was wearing. I had not told her anything. She knew nothing And the inside of my grandmother's, you know, little apartment described everything. And she said, I just, she's just here. And she just wants you to know that she is sorry for what she did. And I was like, holy shit. (laughs) But, you know, there was no way she could have known that because I didn't tell her. Mm -hmm. Like, have you guys ever had an experience like that? Um, No, not really. I mean, it's a hard thing to talk about because it feels like so personal to people. And I think it's a very like spiritual experience that I fully think is valid that, you know, people do in fact see these things. Um, yeah. For me, I guess I'm a bit of a like cold heart 
existentialist when it comes to like spirituality, like <laughs> very much of the belief that, you know, we are little organisms on a floating rock hurtling through space. And that, you know, when we die, we just go back into the the soil and then like create new plant life. And I don't know, I, <laughs> I take more of a scientific approach to these sorts of things. So it's hard for me to like fully understand stuff like this, but again, I don't, discount it you know i don't think that it doesn't happen to people i just wonder if like maybe i'm a little bit too closed off to really like mm. uh, allow those sorts of visions to kind of channel through me properly but i don't know i every day wish that i saw a vision of or an apparition of like mom or different things but for me you know i i haven't ever seen you know ghosts or spirits like in person i've felt things but our mom very much saw things all the Absolutely. time and she would share that with us but for me, it's been coming in my, in my, they've like people who have died have been coming in my dreams a lot, like just over the last few months. And it's probably because we're doing this podcast, <laughs> but I don't, like you said, I don't discredit, you know, I truly believe Sheila saw her friend Angela that day. And that's what I think pivoted her entire life after that. Right. Yeah. I think that that vision made Sheila want to get back on the horse and do something because now we're, you know, 20 years after Angela was murdered. And so right then and there, after seeing that vision of Angela, Sheila picks up the phone and calls the Dallas Police Department. And she asks if there's a cold cases division, which they tell her, no, there's not. So then she asks for the detective that she knew from before 20 years ago, and she leaves a message. <laughs> well, she keeps calling because obviously the guy is not calling her back. And I, I have to say, like, I've listened to interviews with her and she she called at least 700 times without getting a call back. <laughs> right. She just kept calling. And this goes on and on, you know, and it's just so cruel that nobody returned her call. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess like think about it just from this perspective for a moment. Someone is calling you because she saw a vision of her friend who died 20 years ago. Right. And she keeps like leaving all of these messages, like hundreds of messages. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, like you're a busy police officer. Like maybe this just strikes you as like a, 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 you know, like a crazy unhinged person. Right. I guess I can kind of see why he maybe wouldn't take too much stock in it. Sure. <laughs> but like that said, I agree. I do think it is like super cold not to at least like call them back, like have a couple conversations with them. Just like, yeah. I mean, even for your own purposes, I feel like right. she would probably stop calling if you just like picked up the phone and had had like 10 minutes of discussion with her, you know? For sure. So Right. Even if you said, well, um, I can't really help you with that. Like even if right. you just called but stop her back, calling right? Me. <laughs> but right, exactly. But all I can say is one person's crazy is another's determination. Yeah. And Sheila is as determined as they come. So what does she do? She gets licensed as a private investigator. A PI. Oh my God. I love this so much. She becomes a PI. Police won't answer your calls? Well, they will now. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, yeah, but despite Sheila getting her PI license, uh, the police still don't call her back, <laughs> which is sad. But, you know, Sheila just keeps moving forward and moving onward and upward, right? So she sets up this entire, like, war room in her house where she 
basically organizes all of the facts from the case. And she prints reports about all the rapes that actually happened during that time, where they happened, who was arrested. And she, you know, has this war room in her home and goes full speed ahead for two years. Mm -hmm. And finally, though, there is a break in the case. Thank goodness. Um, So thanks to Sheila in 2006, the Dallas Police Department officially reopened the case, which is great. And when they did that, they found something that was absolutely crucial to solving the murder. And that is what we'll talk about after we take another quick break. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Finally, there's a break in the case. And this is after years of hard work from Sheila. I mean, basically, by herself, with no guarantee of a breakthrough, she persevered and was determined to make this happen, to find out who killed her friend. Right. So here's what happened. In 2006, police opened the case again, and they assigned it to Detective Linda Crum. And not only does this detective not blow Sheila off again, like all the other (laughs) police (laughs) officers, she tells Sheila that they have evidence to finally find out who the killer is. Right. And this is super meaningful because the police, as we know, had previously told Sheila that Angela Samota's rape kit had been lost in a flood. And yet here it was completely untouched, unharmed, which is wild. Is that normal? I mean, how could the Dallas Police Department lose this evidence? First of all, let's just say that. But then it turns out that they had it the whole time? Like, what the fuck? Like, excuse my French, but like, what? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is something that, unfortunately, we do hear about a lot. And it is really a major problem all across the country. So uh, we know that in recent years, the media has been paying more attention to what's basically an epidemic in lost or discarded rape kits. It's been found that as many as 200,000 rape kits sit unopened in police storage units all across the country. And meanwhile, assailants go free and oftentimes, you know, they strike again because it's usually repeat offenders, right? Like a lot of those rape kits probably all tie back to the same person. Mm. And so what happens in a case like this is that the rape evidence is never sent to a crime lab, or in some cases it is, but it's just never tested. So when Angela Samota was killed, obviously DNA analysis wasn't really a thing. In fact, the first DNA-based conviction took place three years after Angela Samota in 1987. Gosh. 
Um, so in the rape kit, they had Angela's fingernails, which provided DNA evidence because she had fought back against her attacker, like digging uh, her nails into that person's skin. Uh, they also had DNA evidence from semen that was found on the scene. So they had a lot of stuff to work with now in 2006. Right. And then, oh my goodness, lo and behold, they tested it and they found a match. In the words of Detective Crumb, we've got him. And in my words from Hawaii Five O, book him down. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Oh, yes. I love it. So when Sheila was told that they got a match, she initially assumed that it was Angela's neighbor, Russell Buchanan. Right. And she even told the press in an interview, I think before the results came back, that she thought it was Russell, poor Russell, um, because he had been the most promising suspect 20 years prior. But the name of the accused killer was Donald Bess, a man she'd soon come to call the Beast. Yeah. So, I mean, by all accounts, this was not a good person. At the time of Angela Samoda's murder, Bess had already been out on parole following a sentence of aggravated sexual assault and aggravated kidnapping. Um, and then a year later in 1985, he was convicted of aggravated rape, aggravated kidnapping, and sexual assault in a completely different case. Hmm. So in the 2000s, when he was connected to Angela Samoda, he was already serving a life sentence for all of those previous convictions. Wow. Yeah. And can I just say, I mean, I looked up this person's photo and when I say scary, I mean, truly, truly scary. Mm -hmm. Like it spooked me. Anyhow, so in 2010, Sheila drove from Tennessee to Texas for the trial. And during the trial, a number of women testified that Bess had sexually assaulted them. And this included Bess's ex-wife, and she said Bess had abused both her and their children before they divorced in the early 70s. I mean, this guy was just, I don't even have a word, you guys. Yeah. And what's even more disturbing is when Bess walked into the courtroom, Sheila said, quote, The door opened, and the only way I can describe it is the room lost all oxygen. So just to give you a little bit of his physical stature, Bess was six feet tall. Uh, about 350 pounds. And Sheila said that he had an empty look in his eyes. And Sheila also said that she was thinking, this is the last person who saw Angela alive. And then it all kind of comes to a head on June 8th of 2010, when Donald Bess was found guilty based on the DNA evidence, which was mm. very conclusive. And he was then sentenced to death. Yeah. And Sheila understandably had a horrible and emotional reaction to all of this, as of course you can imagine. But she told something to the Washington Post that I felt was incredibly heartbreaking and super real. She was quoted as saying, nothing changes. You still have someone who's dead. You still have someone who murdered her. You still have a world that's changed. End quote. Yeah, I agree with that sentiment. You know, I think like if you've ever lost somebody in a tragic way, I think there's this kind of feeling of, um, you know, resignation that maybe comes over you. Yeah. Mm. It feels like maybe you're the only person who's cares as much about this. And I'm, I'm sure Sheila felt that tenfold. Mm -hmm. Well, Bess remains on death row today in Texas. 
And interestingly, the DNA evidence used to convict Donald Bess is very similar to that which was used to convict the Golden State Killer. Uh, this was back in 2018, I suppose. Yes, yes. Uh, if you remember, Joseph James D'Angelo killed 13 people. Uh, he was also convicted of 50 rapes and about 120 burglaries in California. And that was between the mid-70s through the mid-80s or so. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so uh, just to quickly refresh you all, they used an ancestry database. So right. they were able to link together his DNA and other DNA of uh, like family members. And using this kind of like tree, this like web, they're able to kind of pinpoint one person who kind of fits um, so that's the exact same thing that they did with Bess here, but this is like obviously, you know, essentially ten years prior to the Golden State Killer. So, hey, cheers to DNA testing, I guess. Yep. <laughs> yes. Yes. We, right? you know, we've done it. We had we had some done before our mom passed away. Like we have a lot of unanswered questions that we want to find out more about DNA. But yeah, I think it can do good things. I do too. I do mm -hmm. too. Yeah. So there's one other thing that I actually want to bring up. That number that Trevor said earlier about 200,000, you know, backlogged rape kits, you know, just sitting out there, it's it's just mind-boggling to me that this is still a huge problem. Yeah. So there is some good news, though. I think some improvements have started to happen. In recent years, states like Washington, Illinois, and Texas, where this crime took place, have made concentrated efforts to improve their backlogs. But sadly, there are still thousands of untested rape kits just sitting on shelves all across the nation and along with them, unsolved cases of rape and murder. So here's to hoping more states take legislative action in the coming years to address those cases and finally analyze those kits and get some victims some answers. I couldn't agree with you more. Well, it's time for our Imua, our final message of hope and healing. And we want to dedicate this Imua to the people out there who are working with steadfast determination against injustice in their lives. Sheila Waisaki didn't work in law enforcement, but she dedicated herself to years of hard work and years of constantly being told no. But in the end, she finally found justice for her friend. And she's still out there today. I mean, apparently she found her calling as a PI, as a private investigator, and she's continuing to do the work. You know, she thought it was going to be a one-time thing to find the killer. Of her friend. Right, for Angela. So, bravo to Sheila. And so if you're working at eradicating injustice somewhere, this goes out to you. We believe that justice comes through action, and that action can begin with the efforts of just one single human being. And it is our hope that one day those efforts pay off and you see justice too. Onward and upward. Imua. Imua. Well, that's our show for today. We'd love to hear what you thought about today's discussion and if there's a case that you'd like for us to cover. Find us on social media at Facing Evil Pod or email us at facingevilpod at tenderfoot.tv. Until next time. Aloha. 
Facing Evil is a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The show is hosted by Rasha Pecorero and Yvette Gentile. Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on behalf of iHeartRadio, with producers Trevor Young and Jesse Funk. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV, alongside producer Tracy Kaplan. Our researcher is Claudia D'Africo. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Find us on social media or email us at facingevilpod at tenderfoot.tv. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.